Well, let's turn now to our study of the book of Proverbs and our continuation of the two-part series that we began last Wednesday. And this series is focused on work, and we've entitled it Esteeming Work, Esteeming Work. And as I mentioned last week already, uh, this is a very needed topic for our day and age. Uh, it, I don't need to tell you that there are a lot of concerning things on the horizon related to massive shifts in how our culture views work, massive shifts in how our culture views employment and things of that nature. More and more are, are open to this ideology called socialism, the concept of guaranteed income, looking at the provision of of certain things as just necessities. I deserve these things. You have this growing sense of entitlement among younger generations today, and the concept of having to delay gratification or to not have your need for an iPhone met immediately. And these things lead to these, these accusations that we're in an, in an, in an unjust context, and so on and so forth. And in light of these challenges, it is vitally important that we as Christian men, men of the book, return to the Scriptures and make sure our understanding on these issues is crystal clear. It's needed. We are needed to encourage one another in these areas, to exhort one another uh, to the proper understanding of work, as well as to be a witness to the watching world. And I'll read one text in particular uh, from the New Testament a little later on that will show how, it, how important it is to have a biblical esteem for work, how important that is to a witness in the broader world around us. Now, last week we only covered three of the five lessons we had entitled to, so I left my work undone. Now, that's not a good thing. Uh, that's just, that just happened, and someone came up afterwards and said, hey, you, you violated this principle, you left work undone. That's not right. And so I'm going to make up for that today. And we're going to get through uh, seven of these lessons in one way or another. And uh, for that person who, who chastised me, you might be here till midnight, but uh, we, we will get through it in one way or another. Let me quickly review the lessons we covered last week. Number one, a biblical esteem for work recognizes that God himself works. A biblical esteem for work recognizes that God himself works. Work is not a necessary evil. Work is not a result of the fall. Work was not introduced in Genesis 3. Work was introduced at the very beginning. In fact, in the very first verses, we start reading of work. God was at work. He is the one who combined his power with his wisdom to create all of these good things. A biblical esteem for work recognizes that God himself works. And because he created us in his image, he created us to work. To reflect that glory and that power in a limited way, but to reflect that back to him through our diligence, through our works. Lesson two is this. A biblical esteem for work requires the mortification of laziness. Proverbs speaks much about this issue. Even though God has created us to work, one of the common problems among men is the problem 
of laziness. This is one of the key consequences of the fall. One of the key results of the depravity that all of us share in, and it's this laziness. And so for the man who fears God, the book of Proverbs has much to say about the necessity to mortify laziness. It is one of man's greatest enemies, laziness. Number three, a biblical esteem for work prioritizes diligent labor before reward. We talked about the cause and effect logic of the book of Proverbs. God is a God of order. He has made his creation, his universe, to reflect that order in something that we call cause and effect. And part of the cause and effect logic is that if we are diligent, there will be a reward that is that is analogous to, that is consistent with the cause, uh, that is consistent with that diligent labor. If we are lazy, there will be a result that is consistent with that cause, with that laziness. And I said very briefly last week, and I'll say it again, that one of the problems of, of today's culture, especially among younger men, is this refusal to accept the cause and effect logic of this universe. If you look at the younger generation, if you look at what's being taught in the universities today and so on and so forth, there is a rebellion against this order. It is a rebellion against the cause and effect as men and women live their lives trying to circumvent this reality and doing everything in their power to to deny its existence. And so there should be no connection among many people many people's understanding today, no connection between diligence and wealth. No connection between what you enjoy and whether you've had to work for it. And that rejection of the cause and effect logic of this universe, the cause and effect logic of biblical wisdom is is so evident in so many other areas beyond work as well. But the book of Proverbs calls us back to recognize this connection of cause and effect. And with that comes recognizing personal responsibility and all sorts of other implications such as upholding the concept of delayed gratification and so on and so forth. Well, we want to continue our study this evening on these 10 lessons on esteeming work. And so let's pick it up at number four. Go back to visit what was on last week's handout. It's not on this week's handout uh, some of you may want uh, last week's handout. We do have some copies here, so if you want that, uh, someone will be handing that out. But the fourth lesson from Proverbs on a, a, a biblical esteem for work is this. A biblical esteem for work takes responsibility for ending the cycle of poverty. A biblical esteem for work takes responsibility for ending the cycle of poverty. Proverbs very emphatically teaches that individuals must take responsibility for their plight in life, including poverty if they find themselves in poverty. Proverbs teaches that individuals must take responsibility. In fact, what's important to note is that when when Proverbs when the wisdom of Proverbs deals with the issue of poverty, uh, assessing where it came from and prescribing solutions to that poverty, it's very important to note that 
Solomon and the other wise men who are speaking to us in the book of Proverbs do not put the onus on the family. They don't put the onus even on the community to rescue people from poverty. Instead, the repeated emphasis is that it is the responsibility of the individual to recognize what brought him into poverty and to seize hold of his responsibility to escape that path in life. And again, this principle expresses the cause and effect logic of biblical wisdom. Now again, what I just said would be considered abusive speech among many campuses around this country. It would be flat out rejected, what I just said. And it's not, I don't want to express my own opinion on this. This is what biblical wisdom teaches. Let's look at a few Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 10, and, 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 and it's repeated again in 24 verse 34. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Nobody sets out to invite a robber to his home. Nobody desires to encounter an armed man on the sidewalk. It's not something that most set out to experience. And the same thing is with poverty. Few people would say, yeah, I want to be poor. I want to be in want. I want to be destitute. But what Solomon says in these these words is that what is unintended is nonetheless caused by decisions that individuals make. And these decisions start really early in life. Poverty will come on you as a robber. Why? Not because you decided to meet poverty, but because it came from a little bit extra sleep. A, A bad habit of a little extra slumber. That practice of folding the hands to rest when you really know you should be at work and a life that practices these things inevitably puts that individual down the path to meet the robber and the armed man and his name is poverty. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 4, poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Poor is he who works with the negligent hand. Proverbs 12 verse 24, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. Wow. Consider that statement. Solomon recognizes that Those who ascend to positions of oversight and management and leadership are typically marked by diligence. And Solomon is extolling that and saying that is how it should actually be. Those who are given the those posts of responsibility should be set there because they have a life of established diligence, a track record of hard work. Those are the people that you want to be in leadership. But notice the contrary or the flip side of this coin. The slack hand will be put to forced 
labor. Solomon teaches that the natural consequence in this cause and effect world, the natural consequence of lazy work will be the lack of opportunity to ascend out of the basement of forced labor. And that Hebrew terminology there for forced labor refers to conscription and subjugation and even enslavement. That the one who refuses to practice diligent can count on as a general principle of life that that he will be in the basement, in 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 the employment scheme. And this is an important rule to learn, and it's especially one that, if if you're a father here, you need to introduce this early to your children, that it isn't, you must not believe what the world teaches, that when, when the world says everybody should get the same reward, everybody should get the same pay, it doesn't matter whether you are in a, 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 a task, a job that requires very little intelligence or one that requires a great deal of intelligence and preparation and training. That's communism. That's socialism. And what it does is it destroys what is intended by God to be that upward momentum, that recognition on the part of young people that I don't want to stay at this minimum paying job for the rest of my life. I I need to rise above this. It's the place to start, but you don't stay there. You move up. And that is an important thing. It's important for us to to move up out of that. And so, even with my own children, I say it's very good for you to get minimum wage. It's very good because by receiving minimum wage at an early age when you're starting to work, you might think you deserve twice the pay. That's not right. You deserve minimum wage. You don't even deserve that, actually. Be thankful they're giving you the $12 an hour or $15 an hour. It's a whole lot more than many others have made in their lives. And so you start there, and that feeling that this is not going to be enough for me to pay for the fuel for my car, or it's not going to be enough for me to to, to pay for my education, that is what you need to move you up, to to inspire you to diligence, to move you up the ladder. This is part of cause and effect logic. Proverbs 20, verse 13, Do not love sleep, or you will become poor. Open your eyes, get up, and you'll be satisfied with food. Again, a general principle that sometimes when you know, we're dealing with our kids, maybe you're dealing with a family member, a relative, the, the first place to start is, you know what, I'm, I'm going to set the alarm for you, I'm going to get you up in the morning, and I'm going to open your eyelids one way or another, and that is the first step to stewarding your life in a way that can reflect the glory of God through your diligent work. Now, certainly, we've read those Proverbs. They appear quite stark to us in our day and age. And certainly, we must recognize that Proverbs does qualify this principle with some exceptions, and it's important to bring this out at this point. And let me give you three of them. One of them is this, some who are wealthy are not righteous. Some who are wealthy, some who are diligent, some who have, who have made a, a, a great name for themselves through their diligence and 
their hard work. Some are not righteous, and we must acknowledge that. In Proverbs 16, verse 8, we read this, Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Solomon did recognize that this is not an ironclad guarantee that anyone who will work hard will succeed and be righteous. It's not what he's saying. A second qualification is this. Some who are poor are not so because they have not worked hard. That's another qualification. There are poor in this world who are poor through no fault of their own. We recognize that because Solomon does. For example, in Proverbs 13 verse 23, we read these words. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. So there are those who do work hard and then have someone come and steal it. There are those who work hard and yet are poor because they have suffered out of the, because of the iniquity of others around them. We acknowledge that. Moreover, we acknowledge the fact, as the book of Proverbs does, that wealth is never the ultimate goal in life. Proverbs 19 verse 1 says, Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. We recognize that although God has programmed into this universe this cause and effect order, there still is this mysterious element of God's providence. This mysterious element of God's providence that that Job recognized in Job chapter 1 when he said, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We don't always have an explanation for either wealth or poverty. Sometimes in this world, there, there isn't a natural cause and effect explanation. And Proverbs recognizes that. We must recognize that too. And I'll say more about that a little later on. But nonetheless, this principle must guide how we make decisions it must guide how we practice our, our work, how we look at work. This principle must guide how we exhort one another and how we train our own children. We are to live by this reality that, 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 that man is, is responsible for his plight. Paul repeats this to the New Testament church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He says this, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business. He's referring there to the problem of busybodies. And this is often what you find with people who aren't diligent in their own labors. What do they do? They become thorns in the, in the side of those who are trying to get about, get about their, their work. And they're, they're these busybodies. And Paul said, stop it. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and to work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders 
and not be in any need. He said this to the Thessalonian church. This is New Testament teaching. He said, listen, it is not an admirable thing to be in need. Now, elsewhere in the letter, he will talk about the need for love and charity in 1 Thessalonians. But that's not the state that we are to aspire to when when we are the recipients of unending, indefinite charity. Paul doesn't raise that up as some great status for the Christian. I like what one commentator said when he said this, the bread of the church, in other words, the charity, the charity of the church was not for those who refused to work. Laborare est orari, a Latin phrase he quotes here that, that translates this, to work is to pray. This is the true maxim of the Christian, be the advent of Christ far or near. To work is to pray. And what he's saying is, his assessment of the Thessalonians, I don't think it's quite right, but his assessment was the Thessalonians believed that the return of Jesus Christ was right around the corner, so they stopped working. Now, whether we take that interpretation there in 1 Thessalonians or not, the principle still holds that to work is to pray. And it's not to say we stop praying, but when we pray that God would provide for us and yet we don't work, what does that mean? If, if we want God to supply for our needs and yet we are not being active in providing for those needs, grabbing on to the, the, the responsibility that we have for ourselves. What does that say even about our prayer and our understanding of how God answers that prayer? If we pray for daily bread and yet will not cultivate the ground, should the Lord answer that prayer through the means that he naturally provides? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 is another New Testament text that deals with a segment of new converts whose previous lives were marked by theft. They didn't want to work, and so those who don't work often will resort to thievery, robbery. And so Paul prescribes the solution, the antidote to their problem as new believers when when he says this in Ephesians 4 verse 28, He who steals must steal no longer. Stop your attitude of entitlement. It, is not, it does not belong to you if you did not work for it. But rather, he says, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. In other words, in the Apostle Paul's mind, Paul was a leather worker. He knew what labor was. He worked night and day to supply for his own needs. For Paul, the the, the ideal status for the Christian is not to be constantly in the need of charity, of assistance. Rather, it is to be in that position where you can be generous to those who truly do need the charity. That is what we must strive for. So here's the important lesson to take from that. Acknowledging personal responsibility and committing oneself to hard work is the very best prevention against and solution to poverty. And correlating with that, it's this. The unconditional provision 
of resources to those unwilling to work creates a cruel system of theft, entitlement, and dependency. What do I mean by that? Well, for those who refuse to work, government comes along and says, well, we're going to supply for you. We're not going to place any requirements on you or very little. But we've got to get the resources to do that. What do we do? Where do we look for those resources? We look to those who are diligent and we just take it from them. Yeah, we call it taxes. The unconditional provision, just giving people stuff without placing any responsibility on their shoulders, creates this system. It is cruel both for those who have been stolen from as well as those who are the recipients of this kind of unending entitlement. It creates this dependency. And we don't need to look very far to see that. California extols itself, the government of California extols itself as being this great charitable entity. And yet it has been responsible for perhaps an unparalleled situation with the spread of homelessness and all these kinds of of problems related to this kind of poverty. And according to biblical wisdom, one of the main reasons for the failure of the government to treat that problem is because the government refuses to put responsibility in the hands of those people. Now again, Proverbs recognizes exceptions. Proverbs recognizes exceptions, God's mysterious providence. And we'll get to this in a moment. But we are to respond generously to those who have undergone calamity. But the refusal to consider responsibility as a necessary precondition to helping people escape poverty is doomed to failure. Number five, the fifth lesson is this. A biblical esteem for work cannot coincide with an attitude of self-sufficiency. A biblical esteem for work cannot coincide with an attitude of self-sufficiency. Often, a a strong work ethic is, is equated with this heightened sense of individualism, this heightened sense of self-confidence. But Proverbs corrects this and says, you know what? A biblical, a, a godly esteem for work cannot be equated with this rabid self-confidence. Not at all. Preparing for a life of work and accomplishing that work must be done in a spirit of humility and teachability. Success in labor... Success in our working endeavors is achieved by the application of wisdom. And wisdom is acquired through the instruction and correction of the wise. This is an important one to emphasize because as I've experienced it, sometimes in talking with men who are struggling with work, one of the things that that I've noticed is is a, a disregard for counsel. A lack of interest in any counsel whatsoever. And certainly, on the other extreme, we could look at those in this world who may have a very high, at least in their books, a very virtuous kind of work ethic, and yet they are arrogant and prideful. Proverbs teaches what is a biblical approach, what is a a godly approach, and that is the one who's got an esteem for work will always be open to correction, instruction. He will seek counsel. 
Some interesting Proverbs associated with this. Proverbs 15 verse 22. Without consultation, plans are frustrated. But but with many counselors, they succeed. Proverbs 20 verse 18. Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. Remember, Proverbs was initially, the, the, the contents of Proverbs were initially directed towards young princes, those in the king's court, Solomon's own son, a prince. And then Hezekiah's court later on was also involved in adding some more to this, wise men during his time adding to, to this curriculum for young leaders, young princes. And, and the wisdom is this, prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. Don't just jump into these things. You must not rely upon yourself in the fulfillment of your work. Whatever it is that God has called you to, whether it be being a, a, a president, a king, a boss of some company, you must not rely upon self. You must instead be open to and seek consultation. Proverbs 24, verses 3 to 6. Proverbs 24, 3 to 6. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. So one of the things that we all should be uh, very sensitive to and eager to receive is this. Since work is such a central element of our lives, we should always have an openness to the counsel of wise men around us. And this wisdom, this counsel will help us in those blind spots. Perhaps it is laziness, a lack of diligence. Perhaps it's on the other extreme of working too much, of not knowing where to draw the line. Perhaps it is setting the wrong priorities, working for the wrong things. Perhaps it is doing things in an unethical manner and wise men are needed to give counsel to ensure that the work that you do will actually reflect the glory of God. Be open to the counsel of others. The antithesis of a, a biblical work ethic can be expressed in this very iconic statement, I did it my way. That's not a biblical work ethic as much as it is the work ethic of many around this world. Number six, a biblical esteem for work refuses participation in enterprises that employ sinful means. A biblical esteem for work refuses participation in enterprises that employ sinful means. Now, I've said it already. Work in general is virtuous because God himself is a God who works. Jesus said in John five seventeen, My father is at work and I am at work until now. But, let it be stated, not all kinds of work reflect the glory of God. Of God. Man's depravity, the introduction of sin into the human race, leads man to now look at work in a, in a different way and to, to, to steward that ability in a way that is dishonoring to the Creator whose image He bears. He begins to work 
in ways counter to the will of God. Work can be twisted in order to profit from men's lusts and the degradation of human life. Work can be twisted to to look to benefit from others' enslavement to sin. Much profit has been made in this world from the enslavement of sin of others. Work can be corrupted in that what is normally good work can below the surface be corrupted so that practices are adapted and adopted that are dishonest, that are illegal and immoral. Now, consider what an example of this is. Proverbs 1 verses 11 to 19, here you have the work of some robbers. Solomon even writes about this and warns his son about the kind of work they're involved in and how they get to their reward. Proverbs 1, 11 to 19. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. You know, if there's one text in the scripture that described abortion providers, it would be this text. They lie in wait for blood. And they do so to fill their houses with spoil. This is the kind of work, beyond this, this is the kind of work that you'd find in brothels, drug houses, the kind of work that takes place in dark alleys and casinos. This is the kind of work even that is done off the books, scheming and devising ways to to, to break the law and particularly God's law. These kinds of work dishonor God. The Puritan theologian John Flavel said this, There are many persons employed in sinful trades and arts merely to furnish other men's lusts. Stop there for just a moment. He's, He's writing this 400 years ago, before Hollywood even existed. Many persons employed in sinful trades and arts merely to furnish their other men's lusts. They do not only sin in their employments, but their very employments are sinful. They trade hell and are factors of the devil. Consider this in Proverbs, what Proverbs says. Proverbs 11 verse 1, here are some kinds of work that are denounced as an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 11, Proverbs 11 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. A little later in verse 18 of chapter 11, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. 
Proverbs 13, verse 11, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. They're speaking of diligent, wholesome labor. Proverbs 15, verse 27, he who profits illicitly troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. Now, this raises the question, what attracts men to immoral and unethical forms of work? What is it? What attracts men or what what prompts them to do these shady deals below the table or off the books to, to even get engaged in things that are outrightly sinful? What is it? And the answer is really simple in a practical sense. Of course, there's a more theological sense to that. But in a practical sense, the answer is this. It's the potential for a quick and easy reward. That's what motivates men to do this. You can get the reward faster. And again, what this is, is is the result of a, a refusal to acknowledge God's curse on the world because of sin. We read that in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, where God says as a result of Adam's disobedience, Adam as the representative of the human race, the representative of all men, he disobeyed and God said, okay, this is the consequence. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. That is the result of sin. And men want to bypass that curse. Want to get quick and easy money without the toil and the hardship, and so they break God's law. And secondly, it is a refusal, again, to submit to God's cause and effect order in the universe. So I don't want to believe that. I want instant gratification. So in order to get that, I'll sin. I'll break the law. I want it. I want fast, quick, and easy money. Notice what Proverbs says about this approach of getting rich quick. By far, the book of Proverbs frowns on any approach that seeks to gain the reward quickly apart from diligent labor. Proverbs 21 verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty surely comes to poverty. Proverbs 28 verse 20, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. Proverbs 28:22 A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. And it's tempting in the, in our Bibles to put beside each one of these verses a single word lottery. The lottery, right? How has the lottery destroyed lives? It's destroyed the lives of many who have dumped all kinds of money into it and then it has destroyed the lives of those who have won from it. He who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. For the one who fears God, there's no paycheck, no kickback, no gift, no bribe, no promotion that is worth the sacrifice of integrity. For the man of God, the one who fears God, he will not break the law in order to get the quick reward. That's the picture of Proverbs. And that's what we must always remember. Proverbs 15, verse 16, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. 
Proverbs 16 verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. And again, Proverbs 28 verse 6, better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. Number seven, a biblical esteem for work does not accept profit at the expense of the downtrodden. A biblical esteem for work does not accept profit at the expense of the downtrodden. Again, biblical wisdom recognizes that some circumstances are are beyond a person's control. Poverty can come through no fault of one's own. And those who fear God will be marked by a special concern for these people. Those who, through no fault of their own, have have, have come into poverty. And, and, and those who fear God will be marked by a refusal to capitalize on their calamity. And even those who are responsible for their own poverty must never become the victims of a godly man's gain. Now, it's interesting to note that this last point in particular, that, that we as godly men those who fear God, will not try to capitalize on on the poverty even of those who have created it for themselves. You know what's very fascinating, especially here in the state government, is the amount of capitalization that takes place in the government on the backs of those in poverty. You just look at some of the numbers, how much money the government will set aside to help the poor, but then how much actually goes to them. Just... Yesterday, I read this article from December in the LA Times about the construction of, I think it was 35 little shacks in North Hollywood. These shacks cost around $5,000 to purchase from a place like Home Depot. And so the idea was to provide these little shacks, something like 6 feet by 8 feet or 10 feet by 12 feet, just small little shacks to provide them to the homeless so that they would have a, a, a low-cost place to live. Now, at the end of it, they spent 133000 per unit. No joke. For a building that in itself cost five to maybe 8000 133000 Now, of course, some of that has to do with putting in some plumbing and things like that, but the average cost was 133000 the city spent five, over $5 million on 33 units. Who is capitalizing off the backs of the poor? But the godly man refuses to do that. Proverbs 17, verse 5. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. We must never, ever rejoice at the calamity that puts people into poverty. Proverbs 22, verse 16, He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or who gives to the rich will only himself come to poverty. Proverbs 22, verses 22 to 23, Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them, or Proverbs 28, verse 8, he who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. Now, the fixed reality is this. This is why we can never profit at the calamity of the poor. It's because the poor share the same image-bearing status as the wealthy. 
We are all created in the image of God. And there is never any justification or explanation or reason to treat the poor as in any way less in their status as image bearers than the wealthy. Just one proverb even on this, Proverbs 22 verse 2, the rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. And that is what is to lead to equity, to justice and how we deal with everyone, recognizing that apart from what is in their bank account, everyone is equal in the eyes of God. Certain money-making ventures capitalize specifically on desperation and suffering. I won't get into this, but one of these is known as usury. The practice of lending, lending money at exorbitant rates because someone is desperate. That happens. The Old Testament was very clear in its denunciation of trying to do this. I'll let you read it. Leviticus 25, verses 35 to 37. Number eight, a biblical esteem for work delights in producing a benefit to others. A biblical esteem for work delights in producing a benefit to others. The work ethic of Proverbs is is different from the individualistic, wild, greedy forms of capitalism, which only has self as the focus. While the concept of reward is important to biblical wisdom, Proverbs nonetheless is focused is not focused on personal reward exclusively. A good work ethic, a wise one, produces a benefit to others. Now, first priority, it will produce a benefit to the family. That's how God has constructed it, so that working men would be a blessing, a benefit to their families. Not enough men think of that. Yes, you must labor for the benefit of your wife and your children. That's a first priority, not just for yourself, your boat, your fancy motorcycle or sports car or your ideal vacation for yourself. You you labor for the good of your family, but also your community. Let me read one proverb here. Proverbs 3, verse 27 to 28. I'll go through this one quickly. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. When it is in your power to do it, do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. That's just one little insight to see that we are not to, to, to approach life and relationships in selfishness, but we are to do everything that we can always to benefit those around us, those who have needs. A good example that illustrates this is the Proverbs Woman in Proverbs 31, the excellent wife. I won't read this all. Mark this down. Proverbs 31, 15 to 29. Proverbs 31, 15 to 29. Read through that list. And this is about an excellent wife, the diligent, God-fearing woman. And when you read that text describing this excellent wife, notice how often her diligence results in good, not only to her family, but to everyone around her. That is a biblical work ethic. Work that is done to the glory of God will always provide a benefit to one's family and to one's community. Such work arises out of two controlling ambitions. This is what is at stake. Why do we work? And how do we work? Number one, we work because we love God 
That is first and foremost, but also we are driven by the ambition to love our neighbor as ourself. That must impact our understanding of our work. To love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then number two, to love our neighbor as ourselves. This, after all, is what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and with all your strength and, and your neighbor as yourself. Now that single text, as Jesus quotes from various places in the Old Testament there, that single text should be the most formative uh, uh, text for how we approach work. Love God and love your neighbor, and you do those things with all your strength, and you'll do your work well. Cotton Mather, the Puritan minister in New England, said this, we may not aim only at our own, but at the public good. Therefore, faith will not think it hath a comfortable calling unless it will serve not only its own turn, but the turn of other men. J.A. Packer said something similar when he said this, all work is oriented to the welfare of other people directly or indirectly. The answer to the question of how Christians can view their daily work as ministry is to be conscious of your work as service to other people. Just look at the example of God and his works. God and his works, that work comes to a great benefit for us. As as we are benefited first and foremost, initially, by his work in creation and in daily providence, but ultimately by his work in salvation. Who are the beneficiaries? We are. And so God's work have this great benefit to his creation. And we must look at our work in the same way. What you do in whatever occupation you are doing, if it is ethical and moral, it is producing a benefit to society. And that is a good thing. And that is why there is a positive element. As much as we begrudge this, there is a positive element even to the paying of taxes. And I've told my kids this before. You know what? What's important for you to do when you start working is to recognize your work has to benefit society. And you know what? Tax will help. Now it'll be mismanaged. You can't control that. But there will be roads there will be traffic lights. There will be infrastructure, an airport. There, there will be a, 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 a supermarket down the street and things like that. It's going to benefit society. Number nine, a biblical esteem for work knows where to draw the line. A biblical esteem for work knows where to draw the line. As vigil, virtuous as diligent labor is, biblical wisdom requires its limits or recognizes its limits. Now, these limits are treated more in depth in the book of Ecclesiastes. We won't turn there, but Ecclesiastes certainly talks about the, the, the limits of labor. But even Proverbs touches on this, and it teaches us that work must always be viewed as a means and never an end in itself. Let me give you a few. Proverbs 15, verse 16, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. You know, if you're having to, to if you're, you're in this process of trying to work so hard that, that your, your devotion to the Lord is being sacrificed, you're not being part of the ministry of the local church and building into others spiritually, you're just constantly going, going, and going, and it's creating turmoil. 
The book of Proverbs says, Solomon says, you know what, learn when to say that's enough. It's better to have little and the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil. Proverbs 16 verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Over and over again, it emphasizes this reality. A good name in Proverbs 22 verse 1 is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. As John Flavel stated, beware you lose not your God in the crowd and hurry of earthly business. We have to move on to our last one. We'll wrap it up now. Number 10, a biblical esteem for work aims for God's glory as its ultimate end. This last emphasis connects us directly back to the first. Because God himself works, man's capacity to work is evidence of God's image in him. Consequently, when work is done rightly, when when we do it with the right mind, as those who have been redeemed, of those who have been made new and who now live in the fear of the Lord, when, when we have that and we work, we can reflect God's glory back to him in the works of our hands. What a wonderful, a wonderful privilege. Man can intentionally glorify his creator by acknowledging him as the, the, the source of, for our work as acknowledging him as the standard of our work and acknowledging him as the sovereign of all our efforts. Proverbs 3 verses 5 to 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. All your ways, even in work, acknowledge him as the source, the standard, and the sovereign. Proverbs 16, verse 3, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. That verb for commit means to roll over. In other words, to roll onto or to to, to roll to. So you roll your plans, your work efforts onto the Lord and your plans will be established. We could look at Proverbs or, or Psalm 127, verses 1 to 2. But let me give you this one as really our final Reminder, and this comes from the New Testament, Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. This is the ultimate effort to do everything that we do to the glory of God. So let your work be solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And understand this, men. It is not just pastors who can do this, not just preachers of Scripture. It's not just what I'm doing up here that is glorifying to God through the handling of his word. You know what? The farmer can glorify God. The Puritans used to say that the milkmaid and the shepherd are are just as glorifying to God in their labors as the minister of the gospel if they do that work to the glory of God. And that is what is true for you as well. No matter what occupation you have, no matter what work you find yourselves in today, you commit that to the Lord. That is the opportunity you have to do good works with your hands, to be a benefit to society, to help your family, to exercise diligence, to steward the gifts and abilities and opportunities you have. And you dedicate that all to the glory of God and you serve as a great mirror of his glory. This is what you can do. And this is what you're challenged and commanded to do. Do it solely, Deo Gloria. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to gather here and to study this wonderful, important topic. We're so thankful for your word, the wisdom that we find in Proverbs and elsewhere throughout Scripture that is consistent and clear, that gives us direction, that, that shows us the path. And now that we've received all this, that we've heard this truth, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, transform us, conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus, even in our work. We pray that our understanding of work would change as a result of this, and that each man here, each man who listens, would recognize the tremendous opportunity he has for ministry through his labor, and the tremendous opportunity that he has to bring glory to you through diligence, contentment, joy, by rolling this all over onto you and dedicating it to you. We want that you would be glorified. Enable us to do just that. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.